Yeah, let's dive in. Ephesians. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We want to we give reverence to God's Word and do something with our bodies that treats uh, God's words different than people's words. And so we're going to take these first two verses of Ephesians and unpack them today. They say this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you that as we open your word, as we are immersed in the presence of your Holy Spirit, with hearts that hunger for more of you, to be used by you, to draw near to you, you are always faithful. And so as this room continues to fill up, we trust that you will continue to fill us up with your spirit. And as we journey through this series in Ephesians, please open our eyes to the reality that is forever changed when we lay hold of you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take your seats. So around 130, 130 AD, almost all the apostles, actually by that point, all the apostles had died and the second generation of disciples and followers of Jesus uh, were being persecuted. And one of them was a leader of the early church named Polycarp. He was 86 years old and uh, soldiers had been sent to him to arrest him and to try and get him to recant his faith. The soldiers burst in and they expect this man that is kind of strapping and powerful looking and they find this humble little old man and they think, what in the world has this guy done to make the emperor so mad and feel so threatened by him? They go, they take him prisoner and uh, attempting to have him deny his faith, they hold him before a council and they say, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. I don't know if you knew this, but Christians were actually called atheists oftentimes in the early church by Rome because they refused to worship the gods of Rome. They had one God. How did Polycarp respond? He said this, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any injury how then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp and thousands, maybe millions of followers of Jesus through history have stood with him when the world has come in, not just with financial pressure or social pressure, but with actual weaponry and wild beasts to throw you to them if you will not deny Jesus. I mean, this wasn't even just Polycarp. Um, many of you have had an experience where Jesus became so real to you one day, you were convinced you could give anything for him. You would, you should give anything for him. And maybe if you're honest today, that, that vision and experience has faded a bit. But the point stands 
that for Christian followers of Jesus, we do not follow a system of thinking or facts about the world. We see something differently. So much so that even if, if spears and swords and muskets and bombs and Russia come after it, we're convinced it can't take away what is most important. It has to become as real to us as it was to them if we hope to experience the new reality that Jesus came to see. It's as though our vision is fundamentally changed. But what's being uncovered in the church today, as with every generation, when there's a passing of the torch from a previous one to a new one, is we have different problems. We live in a different world. And we need to see the new ways that the same Jesus meets us in our pain, in our questions, in our doubts, in our needs. And quite frankly, the old ways in and of themselves need to be recontextualized to a new generation. We're not talking about ditching old theology for new, updated, better theology. We're talking about how the real Jesus comes and meets us in our real problems. Because the fundamental good news of the Christian message that Jesus proclaimed is heaven is at hand. Heaven is not a place you go when you die. Heaven is the presence of God on earth. Wherever God is, there is heaven. And in the book of Ephesians, what we're going to see is that heaven is something we enter into through Christ, but that we learn and practice living into as his followers in the church and everything changes. So we decided to call this series The Geography of Heaven because it pits at odds two things that reveal how we're blinded to what Jesus desires for us. Geography is tactile, it feels visceral and real, but when we think about heaven, we think about disembodied spirituality as though it is less real than the material stuff around us, right? We're gonna see the assumption of Jesus Christ, the assumption of the New Testament authors, the assumptions of Ephesians are that yours and my life were intended to be invaded with a heaven that is not only as real, but is more real than what your eyes can see. So that when the world presses in on you and makes you anxious, oh my gosh, what's, who's going to set the curve higher than I can possibly imagine? So I can't be faithful to Jesus this week. I need to beat them. Heaven presses in and says, I got you. When your boss is pressing in on you and saying, I need it by this deadline. Sorry, you need to throw everything about your life out. Heaven comes in and says, I got you. When the kids will not learn and will not listen and you're terrified about where they're going to end up, heaven comes in and says, I got you. And on and on and on. We need to relearn as a people, not just how to come to Jesus by faith and believing in him, but how to live and walk along the geography of heaven that is real. Because I hate to break it to you, but some of you are given a false impression that if you believe in Jesus, all the blessings of heaven just force themselves on you. And you're wondering, this was not, like, hello, over here. 
this was not what I was told. This is hard. It's actually harder to follow Jesus than to just go along with the world. That's right. That is right. The whole world is bent in a grain that forces you as you're following Jesus to go against it. But grace and peace are assured to you by Jesus. It's worth it. It's worth it. And so as we open up Ephesians and as we walk along the geography of heaven, we're trusting the Holy Spirit and the scriptures to be our guide to, to reteach us, okay? Because it's not about yours and my capacity. It's about what God has done to move in and through us. We're looking to his strength and we're simply going to be willing. Can we be willing as we open this up to move around the furniture in our hearts and minds and lives so that God can bring us healing and wholeness? And then maybe God will keep filling this room with other people that want the same thing. So let's dive in to Ephesians. I'm going to reread these two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be totally honest because I'm, you're probably like me. We read the introductions to, to New Testament letters, and we just blow by them. We blow by them to get to the real meat further on. We're almost numb now to words, grace, saints, peace, yeah, 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 like, help me, teach me more. But might I suggest to you that the same reason that we blow through this is the same reason that we don't actually know how to live faithful Christian lives. Because the whole gospel, the whole Christian message is bound up in that. So we need to do some definition today. We need to look at, imagine this, if, if Ephesians is a map for the geography of heaven for us, learning how to follow Jesus, this is like the key. You know, in the bottom of a corner on a map, there's like a compass to send you north. There's a, like the scale markings to show you how many miles is equivalent to how many miles on the map. There's even like topography layers that show you the ascents and everything of, of hills and valleys. This is that for us. So I want to just simply invite you to say, don't skip over the introductions when you read scripture. They are full of beauty. Now, we got to say, first of all, not all maps are trustworthy. <laughs> not all maps are trustworthy. I got a couple maps that I found that are not trustworthy. This is supposed to be uh, the Americas, probably 700 years ago. It was a map that was made. You can see there are all sorts of oceans interspersing with other oceans, and India is really close to North America, and all of this. Imagine being a sailor living by that map and thinking, sweet, look how close India is, guys. Like, let's go over there. Not going to lead you in the right direction. There's another map. This one's a little closer to home. That's California. <laughs> Apparently, we're on an island. Did you know this? Like, we don't need the big one to become an island and break away from the U.S. There it is. 
I joke, but I'm serious. At one point, people thought this was legit. It cost a lot of money to make a map. Not all maps are trustworthy. And there are a lot of maps that the world is trying to give us to tell us what it means to be human. And they ain't trustworthy. That's why countries like the UK have had to install formal positions of authority, invest millions of pounds, I think, right? They're not on the euro, uh, into a minister of loneliness. Because the maps of humanity that we've been given for meaning and purpose and community have led us into such autonomy that now we're, we're crippled by loneliness and aching inside and anxiety. We got to own the fact that, that maybe what we thought we knew, we don't know. Ephesians will be trustworthy, and Paul starts off with building the trustworthiness of Ephesians, this letter for us. Um, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. If you aren't familiar with the history of the Christian church, this in and of itself should convince you of some legitimacy about this guy, Paul, writing the letter. You can go back and you could read the early part of the book of Acts. It records how Paul was actually named Saul. Saul was a religious persecutor of Christians on behalf of what he thought was faithful Judaism. He was killing Christians. He was overseeing. In fact, he was so zealous, he was traversing long, uh, long pieces long, between cities, going to Syria, all sorts of places, just to hunt down Christians. And then, on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and blinds him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, though he was blind, saw more accurately than he had had his whole life. He says, Lord, who are you? And Jesus simply says, I am Jesus. The fact that Saul became Paul, became an apostle of Christ, also tells us that Jesus is totally comfortable using the worst people the world has to offer. And so I don't know what you feel like right now, probably pretty weak in your faith. That's just normal in our climate and context. Jesus could never use me. You're probably not so negative that you're like persecuting his people and killing Christians. You're probably more like neutrally weak, like, nah, I'm not doing too much bad stuff, but I'm also not doing too much positive either. Jesus grabs people and has the power to transform not only their whole life, but their whole future and their fruitfulness that will last for generations. Chances are, if, if Paul did not do what he was called to do by Jesus, we wouldn't be sitting here because his primary mission was to take the gospel of Jesus to non-Jewish people. Paul moves on and tells us about who he's writing to. In the second part of verse 1, he says, to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here is one of the first tensions that makes being a Christian so hard. There are two basic truths about the Christian life that are laid out right here. Paul calls the people he's writing to saints. Saints. The saints in Ephesus. We don't believe, as Catholics do, that Christians only become saints if they live impactful lives that honor Jesus and love people and do two miracles, wait five years until after they've died, and then they can become canonized as a saint. We believe that 
all genuine Christians are saints. Not because of our profound capacity to be used by God and love for Jesus, but because of Jesus's capacity and love given to us, purpose through us. So if you're here and you say, yep, I'm, I'm as best I can, I'm trying to follow Jesus, you are a saint. You are a saint. Now that probably doesn't have too much impact on us because saint has become bogged down with a kind of cultural connotation that just means like stuffy religious person. But the real meaning of this word in the Greek is holy one. To be a saint is the personified version of the word holy. Now, to be holy is something that we do inherently understand. To be holy is to be set apart for something, not to be used for anything that could be regarded as common. It's where we get the word ho holiday from. They're days that we intend to take out of the normal rhythms of life to commemorate something special, unique, that has to be remembered but can sometimes fall to the foreground, background. It needs to be brought to the foreground. As humans, we instinctively set things apart for special purposes, all right? Think about your wardrobe. Think about your wardrobe. I know some of you guys are like, yeah, that ain't gonna work for me. But think about your wardrobe. You probably have a tire that you break out for the special occasion, right? Like if I'm, I'm a pastor, so I do a wedding, there's a certain suit that I bring out that I'm not wearing for anything. Really, I don't wear suits at all, unless it's for a wedding or something really significant ceremonially like that. Think about whatever your like fanciest attire would be. You break that out for an occasion that is fitting, right? But we also kind of get, get that feeling when you've overdressed. You show up for something and you thought it was going to be really formal. And then you walk in and it's the total opposite. Like you overdress, you're wearing a tie, a blazer. Ladies, you're wearing, I don't know, all the different cocktail dress, <laughs> gala dress. I should have done my research beforehand. But you're overdressed. What's happening there? Everyone's interpretation of what you're doing is you're trying to steal attention from the ceremony. Same reason when you go to a wedding, ladies, you are not wearing white. You wear white, you are gunning for the bride and trying to steal the attention. We understand the dynamics of holiness and commonality. We try and match the occasion with the kind of respect and regard. The same thing is true in the scriptures. But here's the thing, it works in the inverse. The world isn't this holy place that we're trying to like wear the proper Christian attire and religious garb into. Jesus intends to make you and me holy that then the world in darkness would see and be invited into where he is and his invitation to know him too. So when a Christian is called a holy saint, a saint or a holy one, we get to acknowledge the reality of how Jesus brings his holiness into the world through his people. Now, these saints were in Ephesus. They were in a particular geography. We're in Los Angeles. Uh, some pictures of the city of Ephesus. Um, it was in modern-day Turkey, on the western coast, modern-day Izmir. Do we have the, the pictures up there? There we go. 
There's Ephesus, right there. Asia, obviously that doesn't match our maps today. That's the Roman province of Asia. And Ephesus is right there on the coast. It was the third largest city in, in the Roman Empire, the whole Roman Empire, 200,000 people. It had the, the seven, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis or Diana there. Huge, bustling metropolitan, a port and a crossroads for trade. Couple pictures, just to give you, there's someone is really happy about their vacation to ancient Ephesus down there. That's actual archeological digs from the city of Ephesus. You can keep going. There's, there's the, um, the amphitheater where when you read in scripture, uh, there's actually a riot that takes place. And they go into the amphitheater to voice their concern about this growing group of uh, Christians in protest. This was Ephesus. The saints were there. They were really there. They didn't retreat out into the wilderness. But they were also in another location. This is the inner workings of what it means to be a saint, to be a holy one. You are in a geography, but you are also in Christ. The second part of this verse, and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's not assume what that means. If you've been around the church for very long, especially in like a non-denominational evangelical church, you read in Christ with lenses that primarily mean information transfer and future orientation, meaning you'll go get to be with Jesus when you die. When in reality, the New Testament starting with Jesus and every time, almost 200 times in the New Testament, in Christ or the equivalent language is used, this is a new metaphysical reality if you are in Jesus Christ. Jesus is actually with you here and now. One of the reasons we don't get this is we don't get the incarnation. When Jesus took on human flesh, became a baby, grew up as a man, was a rabbi, was crucified, we imagine like he gave up his duty upholding the universe by the word of his power and in him the whole universe had its being. But actually what was happening is Jesus Christ was simultaneously in a body, in human flesh, and simultaneously upholding the universe that he had entered into. In the same way, Jesus dies, is buried in a tomb for the sins of the world, died on the cross. He is risen in physical form, the first fruits of the new creation, and he ascended into heaven to be with God the Father. So too, his presence is actually here by his Holy Spirit. And the moment you see Jesus with eyes that are opened like polycarp, you are transplanted spiritually into Jesus Christ. And he too is transplanted into you. And I get that this is like, I, we don't even have categories for this because we're so materialist. We only think what is real is the stuff that we can touch. We think that where there are not particles, space is empty. When in fact, spiritually, God fills the whole universe and he bursts through where he is wanted and loved and regarded. And so to be a saint is to have a foot in the world. It's actually 
different than this. A foot in the world and a foot in Jesus Christ. In reality, it's two feet in the world and two feet, the same two feet are in Jesus Christ. We don't have time to unpack all that. But here's the thing. We here in Christ with so much religious assumption about good feelings and a disembodied heaven, we miss out on the main craziness of Ephesians and the New Testament. You can't go anywhere without Jesus being with you. And wherever you go, you bring Jesus with you. The logic of the letters of the New Testament are what you do with your body, you do with Jesus' body. That's why Jesus says, don't go sleep with prostitutes. You're joining Jesus to prostitutes in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't lie to people because you've taken off the old stuff and put on the new in Christ. You are a truthful one. And so today, as we read this introduction, it's just about opening our eyes to say, maybe everything I thought I knew about being a Christian in Jesus was so simplified that it was powerless. And it, the reason I'm not changed is because I haven't seen it. What if Jesus is actually in you and you are actually in Jesus? So much so that as we're sitting in Westwood in Upside Down, so too we're sitting in Jesus and Jesus is here with us. And Jesus is just inviting us and saying, live into that reality. And as we go out from here, we need to relearn how to follow Jesus as though we're in him. We're secure and we're safe. We have all the wealth and power of God at our disposal to bless the hurting and needy around us. So we don't look at our bank account and go, I don't know, it's not saving 10% every month. If I can be generous this month. Access to heaven on earth comes through our union with Christ. Just as a husband and a wife come together in mystery as one, so too the church is the bride of Christ, the body of Jesus. And Jesus is intent on renewing our hearts and reawakening our minds to see how insane this is. So that with Polycarp, when people burst in and we're 86 and we've been making disciples and loving people, and they say, just say, I don't believe in Jesus. Like those words out of your mouth. And we'll say, I've known Jesus for 86 years and he's never been unfaithful to me. I can't deny him and live a lie. Here's practically some steps. In verse 2, this is the whole life is marked by these two things. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole path through union with Christ, geography of heaven laid out before us, the path is paved with grace. The path is paved with grace and is itself full of peace. Grace, we, we got to do one more real hard redefinition because grace has become shorthand for unmerited favor, right? How many of you have heard the definition unmerited favor for grace? See some head nods, lots of hands going up. That's what we've come to assume. So it just means God forgives you 
He overlooks your sin, and one day you'll get to be with him forever. The problem is that doesn't match up with how the New Testament talks about grace. I'm going to read through a whole bunch of verses and make one observation. And again, my whole intent today is not for us to master this stuff, but to be shaken enough so that we could go, I, I need to humbly recommit myself to learning how to follow Jesus because maybe this is better than I thought. Acts 4.33 says this, Great grace was upon them all, speaking of the early church, for there was not a needy person among them. Their great grace, that is, grace that's beyond the usual norm, can be upon us when we are faithful to love people around us. Grace increases and decreases based on our faithfulness. Now, what I'm not saying there is that you get saved and unsaved. Grace gets you in, but then grace is something that we continue to take hold of. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. That means we can squander grace. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That means God differentiates the way that he gives grace to us to be a gift through us to others. We can be a blockage from God's intent to grace others through us. Huh. 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You are commanded by the Bible, by God himself, to grow in grace. How do you grow in unmerited favor? The whole point is it's not about you. It's just given to you. But what God commands, he also promises to provide. So it also means God is ready and willing to pour grace out upon us who are open to growing within it. Lastly, James 4.6 says, But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God has, he's just ready to pour out grace and the key to entering into it is humbling ourselves. And that doesn't say God opposes unbelievers and gives grace to believers. If you're a proud Christian, God opposes you. Because God opposes pride, it's demonic. It's the kingdom of darkness going forward. And he says, I will not bless with grace my children operating in such a way as they are proponents of darkness in the world. So you see evil in the church and you go, how could God bless this? God's like, I'm not blessing this. I'm opposed to it. Well, my church will humble itself and walk in the light and repent and say, we need you, God. I pour out grace, but I oppose the proud. So we want to know why there's a reckoning in the church right now among younger generations? Because God's opposing it. The old definition of unmerited favor will not do for the full weight of heaven on earth that is supposed to go forward in grace. I'm going to propose to you a broad definition that encapsulates all of these things that is simply this. Grace is the powerful presence of God. 
Grace is the powerful presence of God. Of course you get favor coming into that. But God has more of himself to give to you. And God intends to empower you for his purposes in the world. Grace is nothing less than the invasion of heaven on earth through the presence of Jesus with the church. The geography of heaven paved with grace and what we get along the way is peace. When Paul says grace to you and peace from God our Father, he's not saying, guess what? You need, you need to force this into your life. If you think hard enough about this, if you find your identity in Jesus enough, then you'll feel it. He's saying, may this rest upon you. If you see it, it becomes real. So if you're here and you're not yet a believer, a follower of Jesus, I just want to simply put before you, whose map are you walking along? Who's guiding you? Who do you listen to? Who do you want to become? And I want to humbly suggest that if you have created your own map for meaning and humanness, taking something from here, taking something from here, taking a whole lot of looking within your heart to determine what's true, it will lead to disaster. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is compassionate. There was not a single person who came to Jesus Christ full with brokenness and sin that he didn't receive with compassion. And Jesus is powerful enough to completely renovate your life. If you want to make today the moment where you say, I'm, I'm done, I'm going to do this, I want to dive in, I want to see what this is like. I, if Jesus, if you're really here and heaven is here available to me by your spirit, I want in. Come talk to me after the gathering. Go talk to our prayer team and just say, all you got to do is say, hey, I, I want to know more about following Jesus. We'll pray for you. We'll, we'll give you a book that'll help you, but we want to pray for you because this ain't about just information. I have a book. We have a bunch of books. We'd love to give this to you to help you along your journey if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus. Um, but if you're a Christian, I want to call you to be an adventurer with a map, not merely a map collector. Here's what I mean by that. It's become normal to believe that Christians grow as we insert more profound facts about God in our minds. As though we're connoisseurs of grace and of God. And so we could sit and we could swirl around Ephesians through this series and smell it and say, ah, oh, union with Christ. It's amazing. And then we consume it. We drink it down. It feels great. We get a little tipsy on grace with a high emotion of being loved by God. And then we go out and live however the heck we want to live. That's not why this is here. This is intended for you to actually take up the risks it will take to walk along the invisible contours of heaven in your life that your cubicle or your desk would suddenly sparkle with the luminescence of Jesus Christ's presence, that you could say, I feel the ache of fear and anxiety right now. I'm not going to run to what I normally cope with. Jesus, if you're here, I need to know you and see you and feel you that I can be faithful right here and now. Take some risk. 
Jesus following him is supposed to feel like an adventure. Not as though we're observing him out in the wild. Um, If we'll do it, here's what Jesus will do. Jesus will invade your life if you are willing. He won't invade you with weapons. He'll invade you with grace and peace. He will throw the furniture in your life all around, but it's because most of us have used that furniture to curate a life where we cover up our pain, we cover up our pride, and he is bent on bringing healing and wholeness. Here are three simple things that you can do this week that we can prepare ourselves to walk in grace, the powerful presence of God, and live along the invisible contours of the geography of heaven if God would help us. You can go read Acts 19 this week to hear about what happened in Ephesus, where these saints were. It was crazy. Um, It brought about debates, a riot over the silver price, a bonfire that was probably like the original Burning Man festival, demons stripping religious people naked. Crazy stuff happens when people are just willing to follow Jesus, really follow him. First thing I want to suggest to you this week, stop thinking about yourself. If you are united to Jesus, you are free. And in our age, we don't need freedom from Zeus and Artemis. We need freedom from ourselves. That doesn't mean we ought not be self-aware and realize what, what, like, self-awareness. We're also very unaware of ourselves. Be aware of yourself, but stop thinking about yourself. As we think about Jesus, our union with him brings us the peace we long for. Second, actually, here's an action, okay? Uh, Where your life is centered on yourself, place another in Jesus' name, especially his body. So I would simply ask you one way you can do this tangibly, start serving the church. Start serving the church. If TCLA is your home, if you've been here a number of weeks, dive in and see how giving yourself away in your gifts or maybe just in your sweat means you start experiencing the peace of Jesus more in your life. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. Serve, stop thinking about ourselves, embrace our unity with Jesus, our union with Christ. Second, engage conflict. What we're going to see throughout Ephesians is that Jesus' kingdom of heaven brings peace across people that should never and cannot ever have peace between themselves. But it happens through conflict. We are not about peacekeeping, we're about peacemaking, and peacemaking means injustice needs to be called out, peace needs to practically be worked out, and in Jesus, when we are united to him, we need to work out our unity with one another. So quite literally, to hell with fake peace. Engage the conflict in your life. Don't allow that awkward, like, you see someone walking through Ralph's down an aisle, and you see them, and you turn around, and you go the other way, because you can't, like, it will be so weird, because you're actually disunited. There's no room for that in the church. And don't just bounce without talking to somebody and trying to work it out. So, action, tangible. Who do you need to ask to forgive you this week? Who have you gossiped about, talked about behind their back, slandered? hurt in tangible ways, taken money from. Like, this is just real life. We hurt people. And union, or unity, 
is hard. It's awkward. We feel the anxiety of fear in our gut when we're engaging hard conversations. But Jesus gives grace to that. And if we won't do it, we won't receive the grace for unity. Flip side, who do you need to forgive today? Who do you need to forgive today? Scary verse. You can go read it later in Ephesians. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And thus give a foothold to the devil. A part of the geography of heaven is actually the fact that you and I are already immersed in a spiritual reality. It's just the one that we don't want to be a part of. When you do things with your body, when you do things with your mind, you give permission to Satan and demons to have authority and affect you in your life. It's just in the Bible. I would not be a Bible teacher and preacher if I didn't say it. And you need to be shaken to say, if I run to this sin, what authority will I give Satan in my life? Unforgiveness is one of the strongest footholds you can give Satan. Who do you need to forgive this week? Who do you need to ask forgiveness for? You shouldn't take communion until you've done it if the Lord has revealed something to you and grace and peace will follow. Thirdly, be willing to look like a fool. Be willing when you go out of these doors and even in these doors to look like a fool because Jesus is actually with you. We're surrounded by people who are coping just to get through the misery, but as we center our life on Jesus, the abundance of heaven wants to move through us. So, when you see a need, meet a need. Disrupt your life. Be late for a meeting because you had to help someone in desperate need. This week we had someone share at our MC. We had eight people go to Vista Del Mar for the foster ministry. There's a mentorship that goes on there. Vista Del Mar is the largest uh, youth group, group youth home with kids who are either in the foster system or on the fringes of the foster system. And guess what they started to say? You know, it sounds like a sacrifice. It wasn't a sacrifice at all for us to give two hours of our day. Joy flowed. That's the abundance of heaven meeting us when we sacrifice. Look like a fool. With Jesus, it will go well for you in grace and peace. So, can we open our eyes to see more of heaven, more of Jesus as a church than we thought we were ready for or that we thought was even possible? What do we think? You down? Jesus is big enough. We just need to breathe and open our eyes spiritually, and he will flood in, okay? C.S. Lewis says in Prince Caspian, he writes about this interaction between Lucy and Aslan, and Lucy sees Aslan after um, she had last seen him, and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. You're bigger. What happened? And he says, that's because you are older little one. Not because you are, said Lucy. Aslan says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The Lord Jesus Christ, who created the cosmos and has flooded it through the empty tomb and is bringing heaven on earth, 
is bigger than yours and I imagination and our willingness to imagine what he could do with a room full of 90 people in a city like Los Angeles. But if we will take one step at a time, week by week, with each other, with his spirit, led by his scriptures, we will find that the Jesus we're following is far bigger than we had hoped. Okay? So Jesus, we pray. We simply pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Los Angeles as it is in heaven. Amen.